Welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. All right, everyone. I'm Beth Baker. Welcome back to another edition of Coffee and Conservation. We are here with soil scientist and professor in the Department of Plant Soil Sciences here at Mississippi State University, Dr. Billy Kingery. Hi, Billy. Welcome. Thanks for coming back. Hi, Beth. Thank you very much. Yes. Last time we were here, we were talking um, physical soil loss, and we're switching gears today uh, to a topic that's interesting to not only a number of researchers, but landowners as well. Uh, and that's carbon storage. Specifically, we're going to talk about keeping carbon simple strategies for building carbon stores. Um, so with this issue, we're aiming at simple strategies for building carbon stores. And we've discussed, you and I, that uh, talking about carbon cycling can become a little bit of a black hole for us researchers because it's pretty complex and there's so many aspects to it, which is why we want to keep this simple and digestible um, and put a spin on it that's hopefully applicable for our landowners uh, while being transparent about things we may not know in the research community right now. Um, but hopefully the information will support production systems, folks managing resource concerns, and maybe even in decision-making for how to manage natural resources. So first off, why would a producer want to increase soil carbon on their farm? And I pose that question to you, Dr. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you know, uh, the first, thought that comes to mind goes back to our previous conversation about physical properties because the carbon is uh, and, and the, the compounds that contain carbon are very important binding agents for the soil particle and so we know with a lot of past evidence uh, supports that uh, increasing carbon uh, increases the, the uh, aggregation of soils. Uh, so that improves aeration where you have problems of drainage and it improves uh, pore space for uh, maintenance of soil moisture for plant growth. Um, the other thing is that the uh, uh, carbon itself uh, is an absorbent and can help hold the water, uh, some of the water directly. Um, the other, you know, the other ways that it comes to mind is in terms of uh, func other functionality uh, has to do with as it as it's uh, decomposed, there's a release of some plant available nutrients in it as it's uh, the carbon is introduced in the soil, either crop residues or root exudates, uh, the addition of manures and so forth like that. Uh, it's a substrate for microbial um, uh, metabolism and nutrients can be released. Uh, the other thing is uh, directly related to that microbial activity and metabolism is uh, it contributes to a bigger, more diverse uh, microbiota 
our microbial population, and there are direct benefits from there. Uh, some some of the some of those being um, again related to nutrients, and this would be in terms of, of micronutrients, and then also uh, the contribution that it can make to um, disease suppression of soil-borne pathogens. So those would be those would be some of the functions that come to mind uh, directly from the carbon or um, strongly associated with it. Yeah, that that was a perfect explanation. In fact, you already answered my my next question, <laughs> which was going to be, what benefits might that have? Um, might that increasing soil carbon have for the agronomic system or for the environment? And you really already explained most of that with your examples, whether it was changing the soil for infiltration, nutrient release with the microbial activity activity in the decomposition um, of the carbon substrates among the various other examples you gave. So perfect. And in most cases, each producer might have, or landowner might have a different goal associated with what um, they're aiming for with, with building carbon in their system. Um, and you even gave some of the strategies that we're gonna get into, like uh, utilizing residues or adding a cover crop, changing tillage practices, adding manures, which are several of the strategies that NRCS suggests in a soil health management system to um, not only manage soil health, but build carbon stores. And so those were some of the strategies we were gonna discuss. And some of the ones you hear about more often through different practices, with organizations like NRCS. And while those approaches have been adopted by various farmer landowners across the country, um, there is a really interesting perspective as I started to gather more information on this topic for a recent editorial that I became familiar with. And that um, is actually um, an agronomist at Washington State University, Dr. Andrew McGuire did a really interesting blog post on this topic and gave an alternative perspective to um, building soil carbon and approaches to building soil carbon that might be relevant for for producers. And so um, he distilled it really nicely and really got to, you know, the heart of the question too. Um, in, In beginning his blog, he asked a similar question that many people many people pose, which is, is more organic matter or carbon better. Um, But in incorporating various research papers, he really distills it, is that the right question? Or in fact, is what we're aiming for that microbial activity that you alluded to, Dr. Kingery, and having such a strong role in the benefits that might be received um, from that carbon, that um, is it so much more carbon is better, or are we aiming for that microbial activity? And so he, he goes into a longer discussion about this, but then poses two strategies um, a, for managing soil carbon, a just-in-time soil health approach, which might use more readily available forms of carbon that wouldn't take, take up as much storage or require as much energy to build. Some of the examples of the just-in-time sources would be 
like a liquid manure, molasses or other sugar-based product, green manures, or perhaps even planting green, as opposed to the just-in-case approach, which is more similar to our soil soil health management systems that might utilize crop residues, cover crops, um, other root exudates from, from leaving those different sources in the ground. So in thinking about those two approaches, what would you think, Dr. Kingery, are some of the caveats and considerations for increasing carbon stores relative to um, individual farmers? Because we know that the capacity to build carbon is not even across the board and how that carbon can be utilized or how readily it can be utilized um, is also not even across the board when we were talking about different sources of carbon. Talk to us a little bit more about some of the caveats that landowners or farmers might want to be aware of when they start out on a path that they might want to be building carbon on their farm. What comes to mind is, um, I guess, some language that I've heard farmers use that are really well attuned uh, to these kinds of practices, these kinds of aims and objectives. And it's where they refer to their microbial communities as their livestock and so if if you see it that way and what we're what we're making reference to here uh, repeatedly is microbial activity because that that's um that's the connection with uh carbon carbon based uh compounds and so if it's livestock then the question becomes framed in terms of how do I care for it and how do I feed it primarily? And so that, that speaks to the notion of, of how much and, and what kind of quality. So in that sense, it's no different from us in terms of uh, diet, nutrition, and so forth like that. So then we can ask, what is the, um, what is the aim? And so the nutrition of an athlete might be different than the nutrition of a non-athlete. Um, if we're interested in the nutrition of, of uh, microorganisms that are going to uh, benefit uh, physical properties like uh, aggregation and so forth, then we want that carbon there. Um, and so that might mean uh, a nutrition that would leave more of the carbon in place for binding or certain kinds of carbon. Uh, if we want the microbial activity that's going to uh, reduce pathogen pressure, uh, then, then we might be looking for a, a different kind of nutrition. And I'll try to explain what I mean by those um, in terms of the food quality or substrate quality. So let's start with the, the pathogen suppression. And it depends on what kind of, of pathogen it is and, and exactly the suppression. But one, one kind of suppression is called a general suppression. And what that is, is, is not, not know exactly how the microbiota are suppressing uh, pathogenic microbes. And so one of the ideas is that they're, they are able to outcompete uh, the pathogens for resources. And so the carbon substrate may be more available or may be more effectively utilized by the general microbiota than by the pathogens, thereby weakening the pathogen. 
Okay, so, so if, if we knew things well enough, we would fine tune the substrate quality and amounts to benefit that general population, which would then utilize it, yet making it unavailable to the, to the pathogen and weakening the pathogen is, is one way to look at it. There could be more, more ways to do that. If we were talking about binding agents, then we would, we would be talking about things that are going to enter into the microbial metabolic process so that it's consumed, but then the kinds of binding agents that we want are made available. This one, I think, is a little bit more tricky because of some, some recent findings that I, I know I've, I've, I've heard you speak about, which is our most important binding agents actually turn out to be the sugars, the complex polysaccharides. For a long time, we thought that the most important ones were these sort of uh, recalcitrant kinds of things that, uh, that had a lot of lignin-type materials in them, a lot of uh, uh, materials that aren't easily degraded. But it turns out some of these things that can be consumed uh, turned out to be really good binding agencies. So how do we, how do we provide sugars um, that will lead as binding agencies that aren't readily consumed? And so that's where fine tuning and so forth. But if we know if we know what the goal is, then then we're in a position to try to see if we can manage things to achieve that goal. And 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 there's evidence that that can be done. So looking so an awareness of of the different carbon sources and the amounts um, that typically would, would be introduced uh, to the microorganisms. Um, and that would be the, you know, it, you know, whether a particular cover crop, for example, provides uh, a high level of crop residue or a high level of root exudates would be important. And then anything that we can learn about the nature of those exudates, and those would come in the forms of what is it, what is, what's the composition? The first place we look is just the carbon to nitrogen ratio. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of data published on if you're using vetch as a cover crop, what is the carbon nitrogen ratio of those tissues versus the carbon to nitrogen ratio if you're using a wheat cover crop. So those mean different things in different substrates. And those begin to be tools, I think, for land managers to start to turn knobs, if you will, uh, to fine tune their systems. Uh, it takes some time, and uh, what what landowners are really really good at, which is some trial and error, which can be frustrating because under production pressures, they 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 need quick answers that they know will be um, less risky and quickly effective. Uh, but that's where I think that this just in case and just in time is particularly valuable because it says what, what objective really fits into what time frame, And so that, that helps guide this fine tuning that I'm referring to in my opinion. Yeah, as you were explaining the different substrates and, and the meaning of those to the microbial communities and the diversity, um, it got me thinking back to the applicability of both of these different approaches and why I was so pulled to his blog post in the first place. And that's because when we have worked on the ground in our own research trials with, with producers in the state, and I've been able to see firsthand some of the challenges of taking a more conventional system and transitioning to a system that then incorporates no tillage, cover crops. Um, in many cases, some of our larger farms are too large 
um, to be an appropriate scale for transporting in and spreading fertilizers, um, just depending on proximity of the source. Um, the just-in-time approach in utilizing some of the more supplementary, fast-acting sources of carbon seemed to me um, that they might be a promising bridge, right, to support those microbial communities, unlock some of the benefits that we would typically like to see or measure in a system that's incorporating more of the slow paced continual practices of, of changing the production system um, in a way that doesn't involve as much risk, right? Because there's right. not, you don't always need a, a full system of new equipment. You don't always need to drastically change the whole cropping system or rotation or addition of a cover crop, the equipment required for that, managing, planting, termination mm -hmm. to incorporate some of the more fast acting products, whether, and I'm not advocating for any of those in particular, I'm just mm -hmm. suggesting that it could be an interesting tool to um, facilitate some of the benefits we want to see without as much input or risk. Mm -hmm. and, and also uh, you, to add on to what, what you're saying, um, it, it, it's possible that it could open up some other opportunities um, for some of these systems. In other words, um, what does it mean to then start to think about utilization of, say, cover crops, okay? Either as uh, potentially a second cash crop or for um, something like forage for grazing. And so then if that, if that were the case, what, what are the trade-ups or trade-downs for thinking about what a cover crop that has that added utilization might mean to the kinds of things that we're talking about here that would influence that would have on the subsequent cash crop? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point too. You know, to some extent, if you continue to add uh, carbon in the form of crop residues or cover crops, whether it's in the roots or the, the biomass above ground, if you haven't, if you don't yet have a well-established microbial community with substantial diversity to break that down, will you unlock the benefits of it? Or do you need more of the fast acting available carbon sources to build the microbial community to then better unlock and decompose and utilize those carbon sources that require more decomposition? I think, I think that that's a really good question. Um, I, I think what the literature suggests is that we can build up diversity uh, in a reasonably quick time frame. I think, I think one of the ways that we want to, but what I think your points uh, speak to are a mo maybe a more overall ecological consideration. In other words, how quickly can we build up a microbial population that is resilient to perturbations, maybe dry conditions or wet conditions, so that its function can either recover or be maintained under, under stresses, under stresses on the microbiome itself. So maybe, a, maybe just a slightly larger framework for the points that you're, you're making um, might be another way that we could, we 
could think about it. Yeah, I appreciate that feedback. That might be a better way to kind of couch that idea. Uh, since it's a little more big picture, I guess it's a little more theoretical than the simple steps to building carbon that we set out to <laughs> detail. But we, we wanted to be transparent in that the research on this is evolving mm -hmm. um, Very definitely. constantly. And Very definitely. it needs to be really specific to the different climate regions in which we're farming in the U.S. because they are not all the same. And it's, e it's easily, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, easier to to conjecture at this point than to draw on, on evidence in a lot of cases. Thank you. Very important points. And so I hope all of our listeners, you know, gleaned a little bit of information about storing carbon and different strategies and hopefully some simple strategies to approach carbon storage on their property with really also taking into consideration some of the caveats and considerations with where they start and, um, what tools they might start with, whether they've been doing this a long time or if it's something they're just getting interested now and trying to find examples. Um, I would say examples um, from their region where folks have been doing this successfully, I think is also a, a good approach that we didn't discuss today, but in working with other farmers, even in our state, it seems like once they find um, a mentor who's had success that they can glean some implementation ideas from. They've been able to gain some insight and confidence to um, make some minor production system changes that incorporate the, these conservation strategies um, with seemingly a little bit less risk. All right. Thank you, Dr. Kingery, and we will catch you all on the next episode. Thank you. As always, you can find more information on our website or in the show notes after the show. And we always want to acknowledge and thank our primary sponsor, the Mississippi Natural Resources Conservation Service, for their support of this podcast. Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu.